Good morning. Greetings to those of you joining us online as well. My name is Joe, my pronouns are he and him, and I think a biblio burrow might just be my spirit animal. It's good to be with you here on this third Sunday of Advent. The Advent theme this year in churches across Mennonite Church Canada and Mennonite Church USA is how will we know? As we've experienced, this series is organized around so many questions, spoken and unspoken. How long must we wait? What do we do while we wait? What are we even waiting for? Why does it feel like October in the middle of December? And today, how will we know what's next? One of the markers of a maturing faith is the willingness to sit with questions, often for a long time, sometimes for a lifetime. Even without answers, living with our questions is part of what shapes us as people of God. How do we find hope and joy in the questions of faith that may not lead to answers, that may lead not to answers, but to more questions? Sitting with questions. That's one of my biggest pedagogical goals as a preacher, along with demonstrating my knowledge of large words. I like to ask questions more than to give answers, and so my eyes lit up when I saw this theme on the agenda for today. Because that has been my experience of faith. Even the best answers lead to more questions. When I was in my Christian elementary school, we memorized a catechism list of questions and responses, teaching a classical evangelical understanding of Christian doctrine. Who made you? God made me. What else did God make? God made me and all things. Why did God make you and all things? God made me and all things for his namesake. Who made God? Nobody made God. And so on. My list is a bit different than this one. We memorized about 40 of those between kindergarten and third grade. The fact that this list is different raises a few questions itself. The pedagogical point of the catechism is to give firm answers on which a child's faith might be built. And I must say, here I am. This was effective in my case. But as you can see already, the question, the answer of one leads into the next question. Who made, or who made you? Who made everything else? Nobody, who, who made me and you and everything else? Well, then who made God? And so on. Our basic list had 40 questions and answers. This list quickly expands to 140 in the version that I found online. And that's just the beginning. By the time I was in sixth grade, my classmates and I discovered that we could easily get our teachers to waste an entire class period by asking difficult questions about the Bible. What kind of whale swallowed Jonah? Who is the Antichrist? Bill Clinton was a popular choice in those days. Did Jesus visit hell on Holy Saturday between his death and resurrection? It was a weird school experience. My teachers loved those kinds of questions. And in high school and beyond, I loved those as well, and many other questions. I often chose teachers and classes that challenged my thinking and gave me new questions. My favorite university prof was a super old history professor who would end each lecture by slowly scrawling a question on the chalkboard. Remember chalkboards? Was economic prosperity the driving motivation of the Industrial Revolution in North America in the early 1800s? 
And then he would turn around and smirk, yes and no, and no and yes. A preview of coming attractions. Every class ended that way, and I loved him. My career and my personal faith is filled with unanswered questions. Is that maturity? That's an open question within Christianity these days. There's real tension between those who come to faith with expectations of certainty and security and those who are okay to sit with questions, even without the answers. Today, I want to be clear that I'm not offering a referendum on which approach makes for true faith, mostly because we all experience both throughout the seasons of life. Kindergarten Joe needed solid answers. I had no idea which way was up. I needed someone to give me something firm to stand on. And high school Joe needed to test those boundaries a little, to test things and to come to some very different conclusions. University Joe needed to collect information, hard facts, broad models, mostly a bunch of books that felt secure, even if I never read them. And then seminary Joe needed to have that bookshelf shaken up a little bit. It was great to sit in a few classes with professors, some of them who had their names on these books that I owned, and I would listen to them ask their own questions and say things like, well, I couldn't fit this into my book, but here's this pile of evidence that points in a different direction and raises a whole bunch of new questions for me. And so on, throughout the stages of my life, looking for work, starting a family, coping with disappointments, building a career, fearing and grieving through a pandemic, plenty of questions that I needed sometimes, plenty of answers that I needed in other times, and in some of those places, I could hold both, and sometimes I just needed one or the other. Sometimes we need answers and certainty, real or imagined. Faith can provide those, and that is good. And sometimes we need questions and ambiguity, real or imagined. Faith can provide those as well, and that is also good. And most of the time, like Forrest Gump says, maybe both is happening at the same time. So my first point today is that no one needs to feel bad if they're not in a place for tough questions. If you don't need to be pushed and challenged right now, or if you find this whole thing too abstract for where you are today, that's okay. I'm not smarter or wiser or better than anyone because I'm up here wrestling with my questions. I also long for validity and assurance, answers worth believing in. I think that's why I surround myself with books. There's tons of books. I mean, there's a pile of books in my on my desk that I, can't, I can barely see over. It gives me that sense that I may not know what's going on in the world, but somebody smarter than me has spent all this time figuring it all out, and I've got all of their answers right here on my shelf if I should ever need them. And then on occasion, I open the books and read them and discover that they're often filled with more questions I hadn't thought of yet, but that's how it goes. Wondering and knowing are two sides to the same coin of faith, and life is full of both in their season. Okay, so when we are in this season of wondering, when it perhaps goes on longer than we want it to, where do we find hope and joy? I've collected a few tidbits and tangents that I have found hopeful lately. Occasionally the internet algorithms think I need a bit of ancient Greek and Roman philosophy in my life. And last week, the Daily Stoic gave me this advice. People don't seem to understand this one really important thing. It's that you have a superpower. You have the power, Marx really says, to have no opinion. He says, remember, events, things are not asking to be judged by you. You don't have to have an opinion about this, he says. 
you can just see it as it is. You can think nothing of it. You don't have to label it. You don't have to put it in categories. You don't have to say it's fair or unfair, positive or negative, smart or dumb. Just accept it as it is. The Stoics try to see the world as objective. Try not to insert opinions or judgments on top of things because this is the path to peace. It's the path to wisdom. And of course, being agnostic in this way allows you to get to work doing what you need to do rather than wasting your time labeling, judging, and having opinions about stuff that is not up to you. I like that a lot. I clicked the little heart button on that Instagram post. That video was literally asking to be judged by me and was probably getting in the way of real work being done. But outside of Instagram, not everything needs my opinion. I can withhold judgment. I can step back and try to be objective. It's okay to not know. I'd say that applies with questions as well. Not all questions demand an answer, and I'm not a failure or unworthy for not knowing. There's freedom in not knowing. At various points in my life, I've attempted to sit down and write out what I believe in various forms. In seminary, I was taking classes about systematic theology, and I thought, well, why don't I try to write out my own systematic theology? When I became a parent, I began writing a catechism of my own questions and answers that I wanted to teach my kids. I never got far with either of those projects because real life. I didn't have time to lay out a complete theology because I was trying to minister to a congregation with people in the hospital and a youth group that kept inviting me to come play giant Dutch blitz with them. I didn't finish a curriculum for instilling values of faith in my children because they needed me to push them on the swings and build beds for them to sleep in. Letting go of my compulsion for answers, learning to let the questions exist alongside the rest of my life, gave me space to work, to get to work doing what I need to do, as the Daily Stoic put it. Not knowing rarely gets in the way of doing what needs to be done, in my experience. Not knowing means that, well, we have to make, take our best guess. We have to take a leap of faith from time to time. But that's what life is. It's certainly what faith is all about. Faith is not a puzzle to be solved. It's not an essay to be written or a degree to be earned. It's not a set of intellectual truths to defend. You don't get more credit from God for knowing things. Models, metaphors, and theories can be helpful, but life is for living. Not everything needs my opinion, let alone my understanding. In the words of the Beatles, let it be. Let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. There will be an answer, let it be. Another tidbit. This one comes from my friend, podcast friend, Science Mike McCarg. We're gonna to listen to a clip of a live presentation he gave a few years back. Mike is explaining that he is both a scientific empiricist and a Christian mystic. For empiricists, knowledge is based on observation. We can only know for sure that what we can see, smell, taste, touch, and hear, the scientific method. Beyond that, we can make models based on those things. We can have rational deductions, but an empiricist would put varying degrees of trust in those based on what we can prove through observation. A mystic, on the other hand, is someone who embraces the mystery and unknowing. Mystics believe that there is more going on beyond what we can see, smell, taste, touch, and hear. And rather than trying to prove it or explain it, most of the times, mystics do that thing. They let it be. 
that doesn't make sense. And yet it's my experience. I believe that it is reality, probably. So there's some tension between empiricism and mysticism, obviously. How can someone believe only what they can observe and also believe in the mystery beyond? Let's listen to Mike explain. But oddly enough, it is exactly because I am an empiricist that I am also a mystic. Because what I know about you that you might know about yourself, might not know, is that you, as far as we can tell in science, are 86 billion neurons telling themselves a story. That story is your consciousness. And absolutely nothing about your brain was designed to uncover truth. Nothing. Everything in you is designed to find food, shelter, uh, social comfort and community, sex, just the essentials. That's what your brain is for. And so you build a map of reality that has enough information for you to do those things successfully. Most of your brain is actually devoted to guessing how other people feel about you because that's important for human survival, right? What does this have to do with God? Well, in the same way you build a model of a dollar bill, right now, close your eyes and picture a dollar bill. You can just see it, right? You can see it. But if I gave you all a sheet of paper and a pen and asked you to draw a dollar bill, your drawing would be terrible (laughs) because you don't actually have a photographic representation of a dollar bill. You have a model of it. You also, if I ask you to close your eyes and think about whoever raised you, mom, dad, a caregiver, you can picture that person because you have a model for them. And if I said to you, I brought the mic around to each person and said, why do you love that person? Over and over and over, people would go, uh... Now listen, spouses have been playing this trick on each other on anniversaries for centuries. Like, why do you love me? Uh, you're sleeping on the couch. But that inability to articulate that love is not a sign that the love is less real. But actually that in your brain, love isn't a linguistic experience. When we brain scan you and ask you to think about someone you love, your left temporal lobe, which is the part of the brain that processes languages, doesn't do anything. And oddly enough, when we scan the brains of people who believe in God and ask them to think about God, guess what happens in their left temporal lobe? Nothing. This is why when a skeptic says, so who is God anyway, you go, uh... It's because God in your brain is actually more sophisticated than language. Now, if given a few seconds, you can think and you can start to articulate what in your brain is a feeling and an experience. But an odd thing happens when you try to describe an experience that isn't linguistic in nature. You change it in your brain. So neuroscientists say that the only authentic expression of God to humans is to refuse to speak of God. Can you imagine? All this time, (laughs) 
the desert fathers and desert mothers who simply said, God can only be loved and through the love be known. That's not ridiculous, that's brain science. The only authentic expression of God to humans is to refuse to speak of God. Perhaps when you're questioning things, when you're skeptical about your faith, when you have doubts about who God is or whether God exists at all, what you're actually doing is challenging the model of God that exists in your head, the God of your understanding, as some might put it. As another but philosopher, oddly enough, it is exactly because sorry, can you mute, I am can you mute him? We've listened to him enough already. <laughs> another philosopher puts it: God is the name of the blanket we throw over the mystery to give it a shape. That's worth the price of admission, right there. God is the name of the blanket we put over mystery to give it shape. It's not wrong to point point out the holes in the blanket. It's my idea, my blanket. The holes, the stains, the rough edges, those say just as much about the mystery beneath as the rest of the blanket. So when you reach a point where you say, good God, I just don't know anymore, when words fail you, when you find yourself stuck in the paradox or staring at a mystery, uh, that's not failure. That's not cynicism. It's not heresy. God isn't going to make you sleep on the couch. That's integrity. That's humility. That is, in a word, faith. Of course God is bigger than the God in your head. That's Judeo-Christian Orthodoxy 101. God transcends human understanding. This is the tradition. This faith, the willingness to pursue truth beyond your current understanding, that is trusting that God is in the beyond. It's easy to trust God on the paper with all the questions and the answers. That's not faith, that's compliance. And again, that's appropriate for a kindergartner. Faith is wondering what's between the lines, daring to pursue the faith, daring to pursue the truth even beyond the page. Our models, our metaphors for God, those are important. The images and answers matter. And the only true expression of God is to say nothing at all. God has always been beyond our understanding. Moving beyond the God of my current understanding is not a betrayal, but an honoring of God's transcendence, God's beyondness. I love how Mike sums up the wisdom of the ancient Christian mystics. I can never know God. To know God is a blasphemy because it is to make God small enough to fit within me. But I can love God and through the love find a knowing. To me, the difficult questions, the desire for truth, shifting and pulling at the blanket, trying to get a glimpse of the mystery, that is loving God. I find that to be hopeful and joyful. One more tangent for today. Look at these faces. These are some of my friends from books, podcasts, and other internet spaces. These people have been through some stuff, cancer, career failures, discrimination, aging, parenting, loss, heartbreak, brain injury, gender transitions, getting canceled, physical and sexual abuse. Let me tell you, they have questions, big ones. 
some that they've found the vulnerability to share publicly, and some that they keep to themselves. And yet, look at them. They are beautiful, full of hope and joy, full of life. Most of the ways we talk about unanswered questions are negative. Wrestling, struggling, conflicted, divided, tossing and turning, lost in the dark, lost in the woods, lost in the weeds, stuck, stumped. Even the Advent materials begin with the assumption that hope and joy are not easy to come by for folks that have more questions than answers. Eliza did a good job of playing that. The cynic is miserable. Joy, that's just drivel. We'd expect the cynic, the skeptic, to look like this. I don't know why donkeys are the theme of the day. We expect unknowing to be a painful experience. And it can be. I'm not making light of that. I know that frustration and anger and loss of not knowing myself. I've got plenty of, it, of Eeyore in me as well. And yet when I look at the people that I know who speak openly about their unknowing, many of them practically shine with hope and joy. Instead of bitterness and cynicism, the work of these teachers is filled with laughter and humility, generosity, grace and vision. These are people who are generous and kind, stubborn about their hope, full of laughter and delight. Their questions have not stolen their joy, but deepened it. Closer to home, our congregation has a fair number of mystics and skeptics as well. I'm not going to put their faces on the screen, but you know who you are. And without exception, these people who love good questions are also generous and funny and thoughtful and hospitable and full of hope. Not all of them are relentlessly optimistic balls of sunshine, but they give and serve and act out of hope. It's not to say that mysticism in particular or questions in general lead to a bright, happy place all of the time. These folks have dark spaces in their stories as well. They have tears and anger and fear in their public work and in their private lives too. And conversely, there are plenty of happy people who don't ask deep questions or deconstruct their faith. The point is not that one or the other is superior. The point is that questioning things does not always lead to endless struggle or deep darkness. And when it does, there is always more than just pain in that space too. We can't always see it, but doubt and faith, uncertainty and confidence coexist. Questions and answers, grief and hope coexist all the time. These folks are living proof. If you are on this road, you are not alone. There is joy in the journey, and you are in good company. So that's the story that my 86 billion neurons are telling me this morning. What should we do with it? Uh, let's pray. God of questions and answers. God beyond and within. God of knowing and unknowing. Thank you. Thank you for making space for all of us. Thank you for giving us wonderful brains and imaginations. Thank you for the freedom of our limited understanding. Thank you for revealing your truth to us in all its many forms. Thank you for the spirit of joy and hope that lives within us. Thank you for the community that surrounds us. Amen.